0: Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day, and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought.
1: Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson.
0: Hello and welcome back to the American Reformer Podcast. Uh, You've got Josh Abitoy here. You've got Timon Klein the usual suspects. And in addition, uh, we have Professor Daryl Hart with us today. Um, D- Daryl is a, a professor of history at Hillsdale College. He's written a number of books on uh, the founding and then also on H.L. Uh, Mencken and, uh, and a number of other matters relating to America and Presbyterianism, uh, public intellectual, columnist at the Wall Street Journal, and many other uh outlets uh we've been uh, having an entertaining uh, back and forth uh with some writers in our pages and daryl and uh we're, we're very pleased to have him join us today daryl thank you so much
1: sure i'd say good to be with you but i'm not entirely sure how this is going to go so i'll <laughs> say may it may it be good to be with you
0: oh i i think we'll have a great time <laughs> um well, excellent. Well, Timon, what well, you you take it away. You uh, you're, you're the you're the uh, architect of our of our plan today.
2: Oh, am I? Great. Okay, sure. Um, yeah. So let's let's begin. I think this is. Uh, I mean, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, the most recent Twitter dust-up we all had, which is you know, it's Twitter. It's all it's all good fun. Um, is is over. Daryl's uh piece that he wrote at the Wall Street Journal. I think I think that was on July fourth, right? Is it is that right? Okay, There was um, yeah, and that then Joe Rigney and and Glenn Moots responded to in our pages, and then we did a podcast I guess a couple of weeks ago now, uh, talking about the same same pieces. So Daryl, I just want to we can start with giving you a a chance to tell us why we are all wrong about your uh, which which I gather is something you you don't mind doing. It's telling us why we're all wrong, both about both about your piece and maybe our our general conception of America. Uh, that there was that there was presented, you know, by Glenn and Joe. But then when we talked to them, we were obviously affirming many of the things they argued.
1: What? Well, I'm not sure that they were. Um, so the the piece was about uh, a Christian case for patriotism, um, which would be understandable on July 4th. Um, and I actually felt like I might have been betraying some of my. Uh, 2k although in some circles called r2k uh convictions and um and and uh, i anyway so I, I made that case i happened to mention uh stephen wolf but that wasn't what did it i don't think it was doug wilson that i mentioned as as people that could not celebrate july 4th and the important phrase that people didn't necessarily pick up on was by their logic. Um, and so if you're going to defend Christendom, which Doug Wilson is doing right now, he has a new book about that. And if you're going to defend Christian nationalism, which Stephen Wolfe is doing, um, it would seem that that's out of character with an American founding that was not Christian at the federal level, certainly, and also not Christendom. So again, that's just by the logic. I guess I was surprised in the response at American Reformer, both in the article and the podcast, that this seemed to be um, a a big reaction to an 800 word piece that really wasn't about trying to defend or articulate what the American founding was as liberal or secular. I did. I I know I used that phrase, um, and I think those are. Fine phrases to use, and I think those are fine um, political uh, convictions to have. We can, and we're going to have that that argument, but or di- discussion. <laughs> but it did seem to me that the reaction missed what I was trying to do and went in a direction of what i what I didn't do and what I should have done. But even more, I think, a little uh, frustrating for me was the um, the article pointed out everything I didn't know. And I didn't have eight hundred in those eight hundred words to place the room to put in everything that I might know. And I might not know all that Joe Rigney and Glenn Moots know, but I actually know some of that stuff. And anyway, um, so that was a little uh frustrating on my part. But you know, I I do think there's probably is some um serious disagreement about the nature of liberalism, political liberalism in the American founding sense or even what secularism is. Um, so that's a brief response for now.
0: Sure. So, so let me, let me hop in here. Mm-hmm. I, I think that just in terms of framing the issues, I, I think there's, there's two, so, so there's two sort of issues here that we could potentially get into potential sources of disagreement. I think one is the, is is the question. If you are someone who wants to let's say, reestablish Christendom in America, is that inconsistent with Americanism? Um, and, and then I think number two, it, and you could group in with that Christian, if you're a Christian nationalist, is that inconsistent with Americanism? Is, is the project intention with our founding? Right. Number two, I think would be, regardless of the American tradition, like just thinking about this in the level of theory and principle, is is Christian nationalism wrong in principle everywhere right is it universally wrong what like on the one hand you could say it's wrong because it's inconsistent mm-hmm. with our civic tradition and on the other hand you could say it's wrong all times and places mm-hmm. do, do you think that's a fair
1: well i guess yeah i think those are those are fair so i, I don't know if you want what which one you want to do first. Let's do the, it,
2: it makes sense but, to me to, to address if you guys are amenable to this to address the principle our principled argument first. and I, and I gather you know a lot of what we're talking about here, this is certainly true for our Baptist interlocutors is is you know the issue of establishment right and how that that can look and work and whether it's correct or acceptable in principle um, even if you accept at the outset that yeah, you'll have to adjust for prudence and context and history and these things. Um, but you have to deal with the, it seems to me, the principle first, and then you can talk about our particular, you know, the, then the debate moves to our particular scenario, um, both at the founding and then given, you know, ver- various developments since the founding. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one one question, though, about the principle is, and I see this among um American conservatives and christian conservatives and i'm having, I happen to be reading uh, jim bratt's because I've assigned it his book on Dutch Calvinism in america um, and and Kuiper was a big believer in the importance of ideas and that um, a lot of stuff follows from ideas, so if you get the ideas right, a lot of other stuff works out and I do see this among Political philosophers who do this as well, and I'm a historian, and I, I i it's not as if history is better than political philosophy, but we do look at the things differently. And I do think that the historical record and human existence, which the historical record sometimes reflects, is much more variegated than simply the um, having the right ideas and seeing those ideas work out. so, when it comes to principles, I mean principles are important, but then you do still, as you hinted, you get into questions of, of prudence. Um, but even bigger than that, I guess, is the question of uh, demographics. Um, and uh, so, on the on the matter of principle, I guess um, it's hard for me to isolate the principle of a Christian nation or Christendom from the demographics of believers living with unbelievers in society, as Augustine seemed to indicate in his uh, his book City of God, that Christians will inhabit the world with unbelievers. So everything after Jesus is going to be a mixed society in ways that The ideal, perhaps, in the Old Testament was not as much a mixed society, that the Israelites were not to intermarry, the Israelites were not to have foreign gods, the Israelites were to keep kosher all the time. So there were all sorts of mechanisms by which the Israelites set themselves apart, but then Christians did not, especially it seems to be in the first three centuries of Christian existence, and then once Constantine converts then something else becomes possible. And it also seems to me, reading that history, that Christians had lots of problems knowing what to do with Jews and Muslims, for starters. Not to mention when the churches split between the Eastern and Western branches, they didn't necessarily get along that well then either. Um, so, so, you know, it seem, seems to me what the American founding and, and their other pieces of that leading up to 1789, 1776, however you want to date it, but is is trying to recognize a kind of pluralism among the different kinds of people that inhabit a space. Um, And you can find all sorts of bad examples in the history of Christendom or Christian nations where non-Christians don't receive great treatment. Um, What was I just reading Anyway, I'll well, yeah. stop
2: there. So, so a couple of responses to that that come to mind. I think it's it's perfectly legitimate to recognize, you know, pluralism as a fact, um, which doesn't, doesn't necessitate um, accepting it as an ideal, right? So pluralism as a fact is something that, as, as you know, um, and, and just hinted at, um, is, is perennial, right? And, and it's a, sort of this caricatured history a lot of evangelicals probably have of, of the total unity of the medieval church and total homogeneity of of you know the big big city areas all the way through the medieval period, which of which of course, as you're saying, is, is never the case. You always have a, a diversity of of things. And this this is true all the way through the modern era. So it's not really a new problem. We could say once we get to talking about the American context, we could say it's been a compounded problem uh, to solve politically and to think about. Um, but, but even when you were just talking about America as we move into 76, 8, 89, 91, whatever, um, as America being, you know, this sort of um, embrace of pluralism and, and this sounded more like in, in the ideal. And earlier you'd, you'd kind of said, you know, well, I don't, I don't want to deal with the ideals as much or the, the ideas because I have to, you know, you have to deal with the facts on the ground um, I would so I would change it to fit your your directions and model to say you know America is is dealing just like any other polity with the fact of pluralism of dissent of difference um, and they construct a particular polity that suits the, the traditions and practices of the people that are preexistent and actually from our perspective as as you well know the, the America had a large degree of homogeneity um, on the ground at the time. Um, and, and they of course recognize this, and we, we all know the, the numbers. you know it's predominantly uh, English and Protestant for the most part. And the the sort of you could say, the sort of settlement they arrive at or the solution is to do, you know, it's almost like a, a new Augsburg kind of settlement um, at a state level under a federal polity, you know, particularly a Protestant idea um, to to allow people to maintain the traditions they've already been practicing. Um, and to, but to try to unify the, the nation in a certain regard, you know, and this is laid out in the, by, by the Constitution in a limited sense. But really, the, the small republics maintain their, their standard operating procedure and their traditions and these things. And so it is, it is reacting to a sort of plurality and, and some difference, um, even as there is a large degree of homogeneity. But it's not necessarily, therefore, an embrace of the pluralism ideal.
1: Yeah, I guess, is it an embrace of the pluralism ideal? Um, I mean, I I teach the American founding as very much an extension of uh, the British political tradition and the, the strange way, I think, compared to the continental Europe, the strange way that the British Empire had an established church or two established churches. Once you have the union of England and Scotland, Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, Miles Smith would say, yeah, but don't leave out the church of Ireland. So (laughs) is that another three established churches? Um, But, but then you have these descent Protestant descending groups that have a measure of uh, freedom. Now there are real penalties. For being a dissenter uh, I mean so, some I guess some penalties, not as nearly as severe as Roman Catholics, but still, so you have this weird kind of Protestant denominationalism that I think owes a lot to the British imperial order, such as it is, so there's a variety of of differences but and that I think is reflected in the founding but the the idea of um I mean, the First Amendment is really pretty important. Um, And I mean, I guess one way to, to get at the First Amendment is to say that error has rights in the First Amendment. Even religious error has rights, that there are going to be protections for that. I read the American Presbyterian revisions of Westminster Confession from roughly the same time that I think John Witherspoon had a large hand in. As also chapter um, twenty three on the civil magistrate, I th- I think that reflects also a, pr- a a recognition that the civil magistrate is to protect all religious groups. There's a there's a nod to all Christian groups, but then there's also beyond that, seems to me um, all religious groups, um, and so a redefinition of the civil magistrate in in that way, but. I mean, I bring up the the idea that error has rights because a major piece of Roman Catholic debates leading up to Vatican II, and John Courtney Murray, considered sort of the hallmark Americanist for Roman Catholics, was trying to argue against the view that error has no rights. He was trying to say that error can have rights. He was trying to argue that on natural law grounds, looking at the founding of that way in the Vatican. Slapped him down and and made him go s- silent, or at least under a ghost uh, writer's name during the nineteen fifties. But the way I also read the Puritans and some of and Calvin, and I, I'm a fan of Calvin. I'm a fan of the Puritans in some respects, since I'm a Reformed Protestant. Uh, but I also see them saying error has no rights, and um, because unless you have the I mean, John Winthrop has this in this speech before the general court in 1641, basically defining true liberty as following the will mm-hmm. of God. And that's a great sentiment in a way. But, you know, the American founding seems to me to say that true liberty makes room for people to have the wrong views. And I and I emphasize this, too, in part because I was li- listening to a podcast this morning about the... Um, surveys of of democrats in america 47% or so are skeptical about freedom of speech except in certain circumstances i'm sure you've read the polls as well and man i'm a big believer in freedom of speech and i think it's been really good for the churches in the united states it's also meant it's also brought with it lots of problems when doesn't don't problems come with certain policies or laws but you know I, I i i'm alarmed in some ways by the revivers of christendom the revivers of uh christian nationalism or the the defenders of it proponents of it combined with the integre, in, integralists whom i also mentioned in that um w- wall street journal piece that they seem to want to deny the rights for people who are in error or they haven't really come up with a good view of the spectrum of truth that they're going to want to make room for, and then all the the um, error that they're going to um, prohibit. Right. So I gotta. I gotta okay.
0: time in. I gotta hop in okay, here. Go um, for it, Daryl. Some some questions to understand your position. So so do you do you like the Bill of Rights? Like, like as an ideal, do do you like the Bill of Rights as as they would have been interpreted and applied at the founding, or sort of as interpreted and applied uh, following the um, decisions in the 1960s that incorporated and uh, incorporated the Bill of Rights against the states and in many ways expanded? You know, so so to give a couple examples, uh, you know, you probably know that the Everson case that applied. The Establishment Clause against states um, that was in 1947, and then in um, you know in the 60s I, I don't remember the exact case name, but you know Gris- well, Griswold v. Connecticut struck down a contraception law um, on the basis of a right to privacy, which was found somewhere in the emanations and penumbras of the Bill of Rights, I think they said, and then uh, similarly the, the First Amendment's uh, restriction on Congress's ability to limit speech. Uh, was was opened uh, to provide new protections to things like, um, you know, what we would often call obscenity or pornography and things like that. But like what, you know, are you are you on board with kind of the post-60s expansionist and incorporated interpretation?
1: Well, I mean, to become even perhaps more provocative, mm-hmm. I'm not on board with um, – the uh, application of the Bill of Rights in the Reconstruction Era, back to the 1860s, to all the states. I'm a, I'm a believer in states' rights. That doesn't make me a defender of slavery, but I I I do think that uh, the Tenth Amendment in the Constitution is a is a wonderful provision. And this this really messy system of the American Founding, where you have the federal government doing some things. And then the states doing the rest, and then there's going to be there are going to be differences among the states uh, about those matters, and that allows those states to have established churches, which most of them give up early on, but in places like Connecticut and Massachusetts, they last until the eighteen uh, thirties. in the case of Massachusetts, I I, I would I think you know people like to talk about a laboratory of democracy in each state as a kind of laboratory, et cetera, et cetera. I, I mean that's a little too scientific for my taste, but I think local variations, which we actually saw play out during COVID of all things uh because people didn't like maybe Dr. president trump's response. so each state, while there was great conformity, still each state had an incredible amount of um leeway in 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 a how they uh, impose the pan- pandemic lockdowns on people, even to the point of counties were different within the states. Uh, you know, so it's hard for any kind of federal authority to impose its will all the way down to county district level. Um, so, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of the federal government in any way, and the, and the courts, the expansion of the court's power in the 20th century has not been necessarily a good move, but it's not just the courts. I mean, the federal government has expanded its power also through civil rights legislation, Title VII, Title IX. Christopher Caldwell has has written very, um, I think, importantly about the way those, <laughs> those laws have been and policies have been uh, established within a host of institutions and regulatory agencies so that it's almost impossible to see what's what's coming with that. Um, so I, 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 th- I think, you know, th- the cases that you brought up, I guess it was Josh who brought those up, I, I don't know that the courts necessarily had to decide them. I'm probably not a, a fan of the way they were decided, but I also would, I think the American form of government from the 18th century, even down to the... Uh, 1950s has been um, has been amended in important ways and not necessarily in the best of ways to preserve the real authority of local institutions and local governments. Well, you're,
0: yeah, I, I push. Uh, th- thank you. I mean, I, I, I it actually it turns out we're in violent agreement on like 80 percent of everything, so we can you know success. Um, I, I push on that because I, I mean, as you know, we're we're in a situation where. An individual can can go sue their state in federal court um you know over like, like the the federal government of course it's grown and it's gotten more powerful it has this bloated bureaucracy but the other thing that it's taken on is it's the um info it's the big bad enforcer of individual rights all over the place that the individual can invoke against the state in which they live and you know that's happened with all of the Bill of Rights, like the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, uh, the Second Amendment is an interesting case. Old school conservatives who were um, incorporation skeptics, like Robert Bork, um, did not want an expansionist reading of the Second Amendment. Now, you know, I, I think like there's a prudential argument that if you're in a, a silly world where every other part of the Bill of Rights has been blown out of, you know, totally blown open and incorporated against states, you know, go ahead and bring the Second Amendment in too. Um, but you know the the um, like the, the, we're in this we're in a very odd position in, in the late twentieth early twenty first century um, where that Bill of Rights is very different and it it goes back to the fundamental thing we were hitting on right at the beginning which is um, I, I I think you could assert that in the in the founding arrangement um, you, you know it wasn't really the case that we were trying to say that error has rights I think what you could say is the federal government is not going to be adjudicating the error. They are leaving that to the states. And, you know, the, again, as as Tyman's already talked about these pre-existing civic traditions that we're able to uh, carry forward on their own uh, with the reservations and the 10th amendment and, and, and all the rest as part of the constitutional bargain. Because I mean, in other words, I think we're somewhat saying at the state level, it could very well be the case that a state comes along and says error has no rights in this state.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I do that's probably the case, but even by um, I mean, even by the 19th century, in places like Massachusetts, they weren't killing Quakers. <laughs> they were executing Quakers or sending them into exile in the 17th century. That's a different way of looking at error and the rights of error than by the 19th century when you're, okay, the Baptists are having to pay a tax and, you know, that's unfair. It's sort of like people who send their kids to private schools also having to pay for the public schools, you know, and they eventually just blew that up. It wasn't working, especially once Unitarians and Congregationalists divided it just became too messy but um, but that's a that's still a very different conception of error and the rights of error in nineteenth century anglo american world compared to seventeenth century boston or sixteenth century geneva
2: right i do you know i i, I do think there's a um... You know, there is a there is a difference. There's different. It's a different time. There's different. Um, it's a different uh, state of affairs, obviously. Now that you've you've entered the you know the American Republic, and I do think that there was. It's perfectly reasonable to say when you have the degree of homogeneity, Protestant homogeneity generally with with dissenter. You know, of, of course, Philadelphia's ruled like with a Quaker iron fist at the time, so they have their own kind of pseudo establishment um, and dominance. But, um, you know you, you can't have a degree of liberality when there's so much uh, agreement, not necessarily as some universal principle of this is the only way to govern, but there's so much assumed, and um, you, can, you can sort of live a certain way of life without a significant degree of enforcement. And there is, of course, a uh, ton of immigration and demographic change in between you know 1630 or 1650 and 1730 and 1750 and, and on up. Um, So you are you are having to be nimble in your governance. What I just don't think has to be extrapolated from that scenario are these absolute sort of principles. Now, we've we've, um, you know, necessarily that have to be applied in the way they are in a sort of post-war consciousness. So we've already kind of established that we don't all three of us don't necessarily go there. And we do think that this is workable under a federalist model and that incorporation was generally bad or ill-advised. Um, and so that, therefore, there's nothing precluding, you know, an establishment at a state level. and And you know, just to be clear, anytime I talk about Christian nationalism or something in America, you know, i I think it has to respect the the pre-existing structure, which would mean you would you know you would do this at the state level. I mean, even Jefferson said that he the reason he did not or he boasted about his first term record for not touching the states in matters of religion or speech or these things, right? Because it's outside of his purview. Um, and I think when we're talking you know, further about error and the rights of error, you know, it's, it's one thing to say um, you have an establishment of preference, preferential treatment for a particular denomination in this case, in the American case, um, and that this will, will supply the sort of public morality that, that laws generally reflect, right? And th- this is the standard. There has to kind of be one of these. You've heard all these, these arguments of, you know, there's always a, some kind of establishment, some kind of moral yeah. orthodoxy that's in play. Um, and then it's another thing to say, you know, you have to uh, protect that establishment, you have to protect that denomination and its positions. Um, but that doesn't seem to me to necessitate, um, you know, execution of people or, or whatever, um, even if you're still enforcing blasphemy laws and then Sabbath laws all the way up through the 20th century, you know this is this is certainly vestiges of establishment. Um, but where you know establishment doesn't just have to mean execution of any dissenters. And even as as you know, even in Winthrop's Boston, I mean they weren't running around like wantonly executing people. They were well aware of little pockets of witches and Catholics or yeah Jesuits even. And uh, Quakers and Anabaptists running around on the sort of periphery of the towns, and it's only when a sort of public spectacle and civilly destabilizing issue came came up that the magistrates felt forced to act. So even that, I think, is is not fairly represented as sort of this, this militant, you know, establishment where there there can be no possible existence for uh, dissenters. Of course, they limited their their civil participation, as did many of the colonies, you know, newly established states after 76.
1: I mean, so you, you, you talk about the possibility of an establishment at the local or state level, but I, I, I still struggle with what that would look like. Um, and if, if it's about a kind of imposition by virtue of, I mean, we don't have emperors and even executives are limited by legislatures, which is something that the Roman emperors didn't really have, or the Christian emperors really didn't have to deal with. You know, if 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 uh, England's parliament is the mother of all parliaments and Magna Carta is a big deal, it took a long time for that sort of legislative body to emerge as a, as a check upon, uh, the Christian, the Christian divine right, sacral monarch, they were saying things in the name of, um, of scripture and the like. Um, but if you're going to have a legislature pass laws of some kind of establishment, I, I I just, I, it, it, what is it the, the 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 kids phrase is larping I, I i don't understand how this is in any way a realistic proposal because you have to get a majority of legislators legislators to do it and those legislators have to be elected by the populace conceivably maybe south carolina which used to have a campaign for all the christians to move there, I don't know how successful that was. Um, maybe you could pull it off there. Although is and Nikki Haley is she the the Christian governor that the South Carolinians wanted? Is she even Christian? well, um, well, well right,
2: no, no, she's she's not Christian. So, so, so I, don't, I just a-
1: don't see how this happens. It, but there might be other ways to try to argue for uh, s- standards. Common standards of some kind of decorum that would be useful for families, children, educators, legislators, you know, the whole the whole uh, debate over over um, attire in the Senate occasioned (laughs) by John Fetterman's slovenly um, appearance. Um, you know, it, it suggests to me that these weren't Christians making these arguments. In fact, Christians dress sometimes worse than Fetterman does when they show up for worship on Sunday. Um, but you had serious people, I think, on both sides of the the spectrum, more so on the conservative side, but still who were saying this is not fitting for a body with this kind of stature and tradition, et cetera. So it seems to me that there are um, ideals, arguments that are available to Americans and also other places in the world, but we're talking about the United States, that you don't need to turn to either Roman Catholic integralists or Protestant Christian nationalists. And I'm not necessarily saying that you guys are Christian nationalists, but, I, but since those two examples were in my column, I think I can bring them up. I, I, I mean, one of the phrases I've, I've written about H.L. Mencken, I'm teaching a, a seminar on Mencken now, and I still want to write a little column about this because I write for the, uh, the, the Mencken Society newsletter, but it uses this phrase often, common decency. It's a great phrase. And he had a great sense of what common decency was. And he also saw that oftentimes Christians of a pietistic variety didn't have a sense of common decency because they were so uh, driven to the Christian version of what is decent as opposed to one that is a, a shared common standard. All that's to say that I think, you know, again, we probably agree on a lot of what is. Uh, a problem in American society. We just disagree on uh, the solutions and the degree to which the American political tradition, however we define it, is um, it needs to be revised. Hey,
0: there was there a there is a ton there. Um, hey, can I just point out a couple quick things? You, sure. you, um so, so you mentioned. I, I think we have to distinguish. Like we're now moving from the question of the theoretical. Like is it possible in a universal sense uh, for a state to have some sort of establishment, right? And we can we can argue about that. I think Time and I both would fall down and uh, on the side that would say yes. Like certainly, of course, it's bounded by prudence and application in particular circumstance. Um, but 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 I do think there's some value in um, in Christians re-examining establishment, whether it's theoretically permissible, um, for a couple of reasons. I think that, and this, this starts to tie into the practical elements that you mentioned, but I'm not sure what common decency means in 2023. Actually, I, I don't, I'm very skeptical, um, that there is a meaningful common standard of decency in this country. And, and I, I, um, f- from where I sit, um, the uh, the pluralism, the, the Rawlsian pluralism of the late twentieth century, uh, sort of combined with a lot of the stuff that the Warren Court did, and then some of what was going on in popular culture, it it dechristianized the public square of America. At first, purportedly um in furtherance of a neutral public square but i th- i would i would say it's starting to become clear and i think it will become even more blindingly obvious over the coming years that we were it was this whole thing was never headed towards some sort of neutral uh, detente situation between different co- you know competing comprehensive viewpoints I, I don't think that's even possible i think what was happening was a transitory state where the public square was evacuated of one public orthodoxy to make room for something new. And we're starting to see that something new. We can't barely even name it yet, but it's, it's, it's some sort of different set of morals and standards and ways of making sense of the world that is gaining ascendancy and increasingly is establishing itself in some senses.
1: i guess you know that this comes to um the degree to which we ag- agree about we would agree probably on any number of specifics about um the uh aberrations in in our society and even the degree to which uh we we we, we would obviously disagree about some of those things too i'm sure we have different levels of uh tolerance even probably in our our Christian practices for I don't have children but I I can imagine and I, I've known families that with children to some families will allow their children to see some things on television that other other families wouldn't let their children see you know so even within in that realm of Christian practice there're going to be different standards so we wouldn't all agree about all the problems we see either on social media in the world world of politics or whatever but I guess that then the question becomes also whether we see them – those particular instances that we do agree upon as being uh, objectionable, um, whether we see them as the, the kind of threat, the kind of dire threat. You, you, I think, Josh, you used the phrase something like ideological or total, totalistic. And I, I, I guess – I think there are certainly people like that out there. Um, and I'm, I'm really alarmed by all sorts of policies having to do with climate and public health um, that I, I do f- feel like they are assaults upon um, <laughs> the, 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 the economic and political uh, traditions of America that did Amer- make America maybe not great, but pretty good. And um, I I think those people are real and I think they have incredible funding sources from very wealthy people. And I'm not a conspiratorialist, I I really think I'm not, but I am worried about those people. And they certainly have a presence in the halls of government, but I still don't know that in as, as heterogeneous a society as we have that they could ever really get control especially in one where there are as many guns as there are, not to mention cars are pretty good at killing people too. But anyway. um,
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, we're a very rambunctious, ungovernable country. And that, I mean, that's a blessing uh, because I do think our elites have, uh, in many cases, nefarious intentions. When I say elites, I'm not not a populist necessarily, but we just have to acknowledge most countries have elites. All of them do. And sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. And I think ours are just generally bad right now. Right. Um, but, but um, yeah, great, grateful for that. Um, I think reservoir of, of resistance and ungovernability that we have, I think, um, I think the the COVID uh, pandemic, it was actually a wonderful thing in some sense because the government, uh, the bureaucracy, um, Really went hard when it didn't have credibility, and, and it, what, what it did is it actually torched its credibility. Um, so I don't, I don't think there will ever. I think they'll have a lot of difficulty uh, running a repeat play on COVID because the people of America will just will just not not obey. They won't comply. They've lost significant trust, and that loss of trust is transferable to lots of other domains. It's not like we just don't trust Fauci anymore. We don't. You know, we trust everything less now as a result of what happened
1: in the let, let the record show that on this one, Josh, you are more optimistic than I am.
2: Wow. Okay. I, I
1: I I think climate change and green energy is heading precisely in a in a direction that um the pandemic lockdown gave government the opportunity for. Now I don't I think ultimately um if the renewable energy can't produce the um the heating and the vehicles necessary for the kind of life that most people in western society urbanized industrial western society live you know it could all come to naught but still there could be some very um painful uh seasons getting there
0: now oh, people people will die i mean people die when the grid is less reliable i mean like for sure. And much of the world hasn't even industrialized yet. Um, I don't know if we're, what are we going to tell them to not industrialize? Um, and you know, of course it, it, when energy gets expensive, everybody's standard of living just goes down. I mean, it's, it's all I agree, agree on the absurdity of all of that. Um, and maybe, I maybe I would say I'm, I'm more sanguine, uh, that the American people will be more skeptical of mass delusion events, uh, you know, but, but we'll, yeah. you know, history will tell us that, but, but like, I, I do think um, circling back, you're, you're pointing out like, okay, you do have real concerns about some of these issues. I would say that um, a guy like, I'm not a card carrying Christian nationalist. I think Timon probably would say he is a Christian nationalist, but I think that both of us, um, like our, We've come up in an environment of stifling enforced orthodoxy in mainstream institutions, especially with respect to social issues. Right. So I was—I think it was my first year of law school when Brandon Ike, the CEO of Mozilla, was run out of the company that he founded um, because it was discovered he had given a thousand dollars to the Proposition Eight campaign in California defending traditional mm-hmm. marriage. The the marriage and the family and sexual mores. Um, the pace of, trans, of social transformation on those matters in the last ten years has been absurd, in, in, you know to the point now where there's tens of thousands of minors who delay uh, puberty or permanently uh, foreclose the opportunity to undergo puberty. Um, you know, getting life-altering mutilation, and you know, the the, the, the like, the, there's a, there's a very real scale of human suffering being caused with all of that Um, and and so these these the moral insanity i think is part is is the chief reason why um young politically engaged thoughtful christians want to re-examine like the the substantive protestant political tradition because we we feel that liberalism has been insufficient to stop some of the insanity of the recent moral
1: revolution but, but here's the thing. Why does it have to be done? I mean, and one of the questions that time and floated in our email exchanges, which I'd be glad to come back to, and I'd be glad to hear from you guys what you think about why the, the kids, I think was, a, was the word he used, but the young people have, um, have been attracted to alt-right sorts of um, – whether Christian expressions or political expressions – um, and I, again, I think the alt-right was the phrase or the word he used, but, you know, I'm a big fan of, so back to what you were saying about those, again, those objectionable incidents in recent uh, American history and business or other institutions, but why does the opposition have to be in the name of Christ? Uh, the, I'm a big fan of the Manhattan Institute and City Journal, and they almost do nothing with religion, which I think is too bad, because I think they would probably, although it may be really hard for think tanks that are not explicitly religious to cover religion in some way. But still, I think the people at City Journal are generally so smart that they might be able to pull it off. But, I mean, on, on any number of the fronts that you and I are concerned about, they are, they are challenging it, covering it. And they're they're writing about people who are actually in institutions that are doing things at local and at least state level, sometimes federal, to try to to oppose these things. And I guess I I think that- that Let me ask you, does
0: the Manhattan Institute oppose gay marriage?
1: I'm not sure about that, but I do think that- there is, There are concerns there about marriage and family probably doesn't does include gay marriage. Uh, but
0: do you know, if they, I wouldn't
1: they, I wouldn't throw them out for that reason. No, no, no. I, 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 I want to
0: ask a couple questions about it because it, it gets to the point you asked. I think it's a it's a very telling question and I, it's gets to the heart of it. Why must this be done from an expressly Christian perspective? Right. Um. I don't. You know, so 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 I would want to ask: Do they do they, for instance, support? Um, oh, this is a great heuristic. Do they support banning pornography?
1: No, probably I, I not. I, well, yeah. I don't. I mean, I I think they probably have written about the effects of certain mm-hmm. kinds of pornography and and uh, laws or lack thereof that allow human trafficking and other sorts of things to happen. Uh, but, I, you know, I don't know ex- exactly about that. So, so but I do, What I want ahead. to drive at here is
0: the, um, I think the instinctive libertarian position coming from John Stuart Mills about when is it, you know, what's the appropriate sort of common rationale to be given for legislation? And actually that you, you see that carried through to Rawls expressed a bit differently, but he also has this concept of, public reason, um, and how public reason cannot be when you articulate, when you advocate for legislation in the public square, you cannot be using reasons that are unique to your own comprehensive viewpoint. You have to give a reason for legislation that would be accessible to everybody, no matter what their comprehensive viewpoint. And that's a rough paraphrase, but that's the basic concept. And so, so pornography is interesting on the, on that, on that level, because, um, In one sense, okay, yeah, really, you know, it's it's tough to make an argument that uh, pornography, if it's done with consenting adults and you know there's no trafficking involved, it it's hard to make any argument that it's physically harming people. I mean, the direct argument really against pornography is that it's morally degrading, and of course, because it's morally degrading, you would expect it to cause people to have worse moral character, and then that would express itself in different ways that are very that could be harmful. Um, but, but just very squarely, like the most basic reason why you'd want to ban pornography is because it's morally harmful. And, um, it, and, and I think that that, that is a category, uh, that we have entirely lost. Um, and, you know, and it's really, it's difficult. Um, you, you know, that, that has to be, the, that argument has to be asserted from a particular moral framework, uh, even to, even to make it, um. It's not a. It's it's almost definitely not a, a common or public reason in Rawlsian's uh, Rawls conception.
1: But but there are other ways to approach that, and and aside from the moral argument, you could ar- also argue that it is inhuman. That if you wanted to take a page or two out of Aristotle, which is about all I know of Aristotle, but that it, people just going around as sexual. Beings and simply engaging in uh, expressions of their of their passions is is contrary to what even Greek pagans could see about the nature of what it meant to be a human being. So you could say that this is really not living up to human right. potential. And,
2: and I think so.
1: And and but but it's also to the case that if you're going to make an argument for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the immorality of of pornography based on a Christian morality, when it comes to prudence, I don't think that argument is going to go very far right now. So wouldn't it be better to try to find other sorts of arguments? I don't necessarily care for Rawls. I haven't read Mill since undergraduate days, but I mean, they're just simply commonsensical arguments and also other voices in the Western tradition that you could appeal well, I, to. I think,
2: you know, part of what, so if we're talking about the kids again, and I borrowed that title, the kids are all right from a, one of Michael Anton's reviews. Right. But um, so, right. and you know, where he was talking about everybody going to a you know, Nietzschean expressions now and this sort of thing. But, um, you know, I think, I think one thing that younger people um, and I think that's where we all agree it's concentrated though. I'm sure that's not totally true. Um, something they see is, you know, the the lack of this shared sort of, uh, we, we can even use Rawls's phrase, you know, public reason agreed upon precepts or priors, um, this sort of thing. That being, you know, completely eroded for the most part in, in public discourse, where the sort of, and what they would say they see is the facade of, you know, this sort of rules-based or proceduralist approach to governance has been um, stripped away, and it's all been kind of laid bare. And so you could say, you know, what they're, what they're witnessing or ex- experiencing, as Josh was kind of pointing out, for, for many of them, depending on where we came from, how much time we spent in higher education or corporate America or government. Um, those of us that did, you know, you, you see this um, very starkly, the the erosion of these these shared sort of norms, the t- total loss of homogeneity in a religious or moral sense, and you see that that really the only thing that comes next or that is happening is the return of of politics proper, right? So the the um, algorithm of what we would call you know procedural liberalism is to, sort of crashed, and what you have to do now is recalibrate your your system to the higher ends that you know classically you brought up Aristotle and um, even pagan philosophers recognizing that these things have to be oriented. Uh, to a true anthropology, which includes, you know, higher ends than just material conditions, and so people are recognizing that and, and realizing there is a moral um, weight to to all political life. In fact, that's basically what it is, and saying, well, we if if you're going to choose, and you kind of have to choose, it's not that we shouldn't seek agreement on on many things, but Everything's kind of up for grabs. There is no ag- agreement as it stands, at least in large swaths of the country. And if you're going to talk about you know the Western tradition, well, certainly the, the great pagan philosophers um, you know are, are part of that, but also um, the, the you know real purveyor and, and sort of curator of that is Christianity. And you have um, even in America, of course, as, as you know, the um, recognition of Christianity as part of the common law as being, you know, us being at least a generally Christian people across the board. You know, John Jay, John Adams, whoever, everyone, you know, kind of says it and saying, okay, well, if we want to be, if we want to recover this, the the morality, the moral standards, the religious orientation of our our of our country and our civilization, which is the glue, the indispensable glue, all all political philosophers would recognize in some sense, then you know, let's let's really do this thing and. Let's get back in touch with with even the real American tradition and try to see what you can recover to offer renewal uh, to the society. And I think people I think younger people just uh, and I'll shut up for a minute is, you know, seeing that, okay we're we're totally back to basics, real politics. We can't just agree to disagree anymore. It's it's not how it's it's working because that's a one way ratchet. Right. And and most people actually, as the left recognizes, are pretty pliable. and you really don't need a majority to get to get your sort of moral vision injected into the bloodstream. You can do it with a with a you know pretty pretty small minority, especially um, you know of course the, the gay lobby and things like this demonstrate that quite well um, how quickly. So um, for I'm just throwing that last part out there is, is you know to at least some some populations um, on the right it doesn't seem like quite the pipe dream that that other people might think it is to, to assume you can have some kind of progress or, or, or change in this way.
1: So I guess that, that um, may get to the reason why <clears throat> um, younger people are uh, attracted, kids are attracted to the alt-right as it were. And I, and I guess, you know, this goes to, I and mean, this is another problem with the United States and, Diagnosing how it happens. Uh, Michael Lynn, I, I tend to mm-hmm. um, think is pretty smart about this, but the failure of our institutions, political parties, unions, uh, even government a- agencies and uh, branches of government um, and social media provides outlets for, as you say, injecting your, your moral views into the public realm in a, in a quick way but it, it I do wonder though sometimes about the Christian young people and the degree to which um, they create their own platforms for articulating a Christian outlook on any number of things and 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 don't actually try to funnel their energies into. Protestant denominations or churches that are existing, and and of course I'm I'm an old fogey in a very small denomination, but I think more generally denominations are another one of those institutions in American society and even in American Christianity that seem to have be just sort of unappealing um, to. Uh, millennials generate, I don't know what, I don't know how to classify the, the generations. What's more attractive, what has been more attractive is the mega church pastor, Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, uh, the network of churches in something or the, the platforms that people can create, uh, of Christian expression. And, um, you know, I'm not saying the denominations really have all that kind of muscle. The mainline did. Uh, as Aaron Wren well knows and has argued as being part of the Protestant Mm -hmm. establishment. But, you know, I I do think that the work of, of uh, sort of recovery should use existing institutions as much as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. And at least some caution should be given to creating um, platforms, other outlets that, you know, in a decade, may not be around uh that particular blog that p- particular podcast that set of uh of readers and audience mm-hmm. i don't know yep. daryl
0: um wow that yeah a lot to a lot to um respond to there you know i mean maybe you don't know i mean the american reformer as an organization where we dedicate our resources is uh completely committed to the proposition that Christian institutions matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like one of our, one of our raison d'etre right there in our mission statement. Um, I'm a Southern Baptist and very, very active in what's going on there, including at, you know, at the most recent convention where we uh, kicked out the author of one of the best selling books of all time, because he had women pastors in his church. And that was, that was a fight. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I, I would say that, um,
1: And I wasn't meaning to take a shot at America. No, 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 no.
0: I understand, but but we're we're aligned with the kids, and so to the extent that we are, I would say that the the later millennials and maybe to Gen X to some extent were, um, you know, they were they were cool with non denominationalism. They maybe didn't fully grasp at all times the needs for denominations.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: But I would say there's emerging interest in the. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if it's all generation, I think it's cutting across generations, but an emerging recognition that, um, wow, you know, the, the need for robust Christian institutions becomes particularly acute when every other institution is totally arrayed against you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually like very broadly driving people back to Christian institutions and wanting to understand how we can how we can support them, but them some and, and make the most use of them. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe another, maybe another instance where I'm more optimistic than you, but, uh, I, I, right. I, there's a rising generation of young people very interested in this stuff. And, you know, the, the other thing I'll say too, is that, um, I think you're spot, on, a lot of people have said this, but, uh, social media and more broadly digital conditions. The one thing that they do is they, they tend to facilitate as opposed to the mass media that we had in a prior generation, they tend to facilitate the formation of smaller tribes. Like people, you can you can sort yourself with greater granularity into a very small group of people with whom you share like 99.9% of it, all your views. And I think we're like just beginning to even grasp the implications of that for government, for society, for lots of different things. I, I, I guess I would just say that, um, I don't know. I don't know entirely if it's if it's um, now that we have this technology that enables people to go and make themselves a platform. And by having a very distinctive view, they tend to create a following. Given that that's out there, I don't know how that genie gets put back in the bottle, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, other than to say, you know, with uh, with people who do build the followings, you, you you do want to inspire them to find ways to plug into especially if they're christians and you've built a platform find ways to to get accountability to plug into a bigger institution uh whether it be a denomination or whatever else um inspire them that that will it could it could make their work more Mm -hmm. lasting and durable agreed well that wasn't too bad was it
1: No, no it was good even good? Thank
0: you for joining us, Daryl. Uh, we could go on for hours, um, but
1: sure, we could. Uh, Maybe we'll do it again. All right, yeah. you,
0: you,
2: Much agreement. Uh, I mean, I I appreciate you coming on to uh, to engage with us. I mean, I think we um, there was both light and heat, so that's that's a good day's work.
0: All right. Wonderful. Uh, audience, thank you so much for listening today. Um, we, we appreciate your support and attention. You can find us at amreformer on Twitter. You can find us at americanreformer.org on the internet. And you can find this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and any other purveyor of fine podcasts. Please uh, leave us a rating. Uh, a review helps us extend our reach. Uh, thank you so much. And until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at americanreformer.org. That's americanreformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook
1: and on Twitter at amreformer.